This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Future Histories, What Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine, and the Paris Commune Teach Us About Digital Technology by Lizzie O'Shea. When we talk about technology, we always talk about the future, which makes it hard to figure out how to get there. In future histories, Lizzie O'Shea argues that we need to stop looking forward and start looking backwards. Weaving together histories of computing and social movements with modern theories of the mind, society, and self, O'Shea constructs a usable past that can help us determine our digital future. What, she asks, can the Paris Commune tell us about earlier experiments in sharing resources, like the internet, in common? Can debates over digital access be guided by Tom Paine's theories of democratic economic redistribution? And how is Elon Musk not a visionary, but a throwback to Victorian-era utopians? In engaging, sparkling prose, O'Shea shows us how very human our understanding of technology is, and what potential exists for struggle, for liberation, for art and poetry in our digital present. Future histories is for all of us, makers, coders, hacktivists, Facebook users, self-styled Luddites, who find ourselves in a brave new world. Future histories, what Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine, and the Paris Commune teach us about digital technology, by Lizzie O'Shea, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and this interview was recorded in Santiago de Chile, but right now, as I read these words, I am back in Providence, Rhode Island. Earlier this year, I posted my interview with Daniel Jadwe, the communist mayor of Recoleta, a municipality in Santiago. That interview was in Spanish, and we published a transcript in English at Jacobin. Today's episode is an interview in English with two of Chile's smartest and most interesting left-wing social movement leaders. Alondra Carillo, an organizer with the Coordinadora Feminista 8M, Chile's powerful feminist coalition that brought hundreds of thousands to the streets this past March, and Pablo Abufom, an organizer with No Mas AFP, a mass movement to abolish Chile's privatized joke of a pension system and replace it with something radically better. Both movements pose a challenge not only to Chile's conservative government, led by President Sebastián Piñera, but also to the entire neoliberal order that has followed Pinochet's U.S.-backed fascist dictatorship. But both, I think, also offer leftists everywhere important models for how to build movements that connect workers who earn wages and those who perform unwaged work in the home, and in doing so, work to integrate socialism and feminism into one struggle. These are the sorts of movements, in other words, that can unite a diverse working class. 
Notably, the current wave of feminist organizing in part grew out of a crisis in Chilean radical left organizations, as women left those organizations over sexism and abuse. Their success since then in building one of Chile's strongest movements is a testament to how important it is for the left to always make feminism core to its politics. I haven't directly witnessed Nomas AFP in action, but I did participate in Santiago's Women's March, which drew hundreds of thousands to the streets. It was perhaps the most impressive mass protest I've ever seen in person. It felt as big as the D.C. Women's March, though I just double-checked that and it wasn't, but given Chile's size, it was much larger per capita. Chile's left is vibrant, and that matters tremendously at a time of right-wing reaction across Latin America. Chile's left is also, surprise, surprise, quite fractious. There are differences between social movement organizers like Carillo and Abufom, for example, and Hadwe's Communist Party, which was, under President Michel Bachelet, a member of the center-left governing coalition. Another major force on the left is the Frente Amplio, or Broad Front, a collection of various parties with various politics that in part emerged from Chile's vibrant student movement. And so now I've done interviews with a communist leader and with leaders of the extra-parliamentary social movement left. When I return to Chile next year, I promise to do an interview with someone or someones from Frente Amplio. I in no way want to pick sides on the Chilean left. Instead, I want to show those of you outside of Chile its diversity and vibrancy. One quick note. Before the interview, I thought Chile's household debt was one of the highest in the world. I double-checked that, and it's not quite right, but Chile does have the highest level in Latin America. Also, and I'll keep this very short because my book is literally due on Sunday, Please support this podcast with money at patreon.com slash the dig. Not only do those of you who support the show make the show possible, you have also made my forthcoming book, All American Nativism, on the history of anti-immigrant politics, possible. So far, the book has cost me money rather than made me any. So without the podcast, I would not have been able to work this no-pay second job of writing it. So thank you for your support, and if you do listen to and like this podcast, haven't contributed yet, but can afford to do so, please contribute now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Oh, and one last thing on the financial front, we are looking for new advertisers. We've got Verso, University of California Press, N plus one, and others. If you are a book or magazine or podcast publisher or have some relationship to such things, get in touch with me about advertising. It's a really affordable way to reach a bunch of leftist readers and listeners. Okay, here's Alondra Carillo and Pablo Abufom. Alondra Carillo is a psychologist, feminist activist, and member of the Cornilora Feminista, Ocho M, or the March 8th Feminist Coordinator. Pablo Abufom is a translator, 
militant in the Solidaridad organization, and a founding member of the Social Center and Projection Library, and also a member of the Coordinadora Nacional de Trabajadores y Trabajadoras No Más AFP, which roughly but not very elegantly translates as the National Workers Coordinator against the Pension Fund Administrator. Alondra Carrillo and Pablo Abufom, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Thank you. We're so happy to be here. I want to start with a really general question just to set the stage for everything else we're going to discuss. What are Chile's core social movements today, and what does their prominence reflect about the historical trajectory of Chilean politics, society, economics, as they've passed in a more long-term context, as they've passed from Allende's popular unity government through the Pinochet dictatorship to this transition that has somehow still not come to an end? It's hard to answer that because um, social movements have had a relatively short history of coming and going. So if I should think of the main ones today, it's for one part the feminist movement, of course, that's huge. For another part, the environmental movement that's going on in a sort of fragmented way in terms of... uh, hundreds of struggles that are taking place like within like particular conflicts. I believe that those are the the living uh, social movements. But we also had a major student movement uh, in the past decade and also the movements uh, the movement for pensions. But both of them are like sort of you know pause or are in a moment of decline, uh, are not capable of continuing the process of developing and growing. That's what I would say to open the, the picture. There's a narrative in Chile, especially in the left, that uh, we have to understand social movements as uh, spaces of uh, confrontation with the different forms the capitalist state takes in different times. And so basically, this narrative for the left is that we we are living under a neoliberal state and that most of the social movements that exist are confronting that. And when you you look to the the past and you see social movements before, you see that they are, especially in the, the mid 20th century, 50s, 60s, and 70s, early 70s. They were mostly organized around special, uh, you would say, subjectivities of, or subjects like the student movement and the, the labor uh, movement and also the pobladores, right? The, the struggle for housing and the communities and also peasants that actually existed in Chile for most of the of the time. But it's it's changed now, right? You have mostly agricultural workers, more, more than peasants owning small plots of, of land or or stuff like that. And so you see that social movements in the past are based around that shared experience of being someone or having a special place in society. Uh, and so even the left is organized around that. Apart from parties, you have 
like revolutionary movements that are organized around specific specific uh, subjects, like the everything that the Mir, the revolutionary left movement, did was organized around the movimiento de trabajadores revolucionarios, movimiento de campesinos revolucionarios, so revolutionary revolutionary fronts for specific subjects. And then after the dictatorship, d during the dictatorship and after, you have a, a sort of like a shift in the center of gravity of social movements towards more complex and we would say multi-sectorial uh, perspectives. So that's why you have the uh, a feminist movement, for instance, right now that it's not exactly only from and for women. It's uh, a lot more than that. It's about coming from the perspective of women and sexual dissidents, building a perspective and developing a perspective about everything that's going on in, in society, in politics, in, in the economy and all that. So what was it about the dictatorship and then the beginning of the, the transition that changed social movements in, in Chile from one based around more particular and I guess kind of tr traditional left subjectivities like the work the worker being a revolutionary subject who acts through a union or and then a communist party etc to I guess the more pessimistic way to frame it would be fragmented the more optimistic way to frame it would be transversal or something like that does the arrangement of social movements say reflect in in a negative way the the kind of neoliberal order of society and to what extent do they are they meeting the challenges of the organization of today's political economy in a in a necessary way? I believe what Pablo said to be true. Like there were like political subjectivities that were clearly distinguished and separate from one another, and that uh, framed the way in which the left thought that they had to come up with uh, this new moment to find out that subjectivity that's been hidden or lost or whatever. And that they had, they had the task of encountering it or making it exist in such a way again. Recovering it. Yeah, recovering it. And also recover the class because it was lost and nobody like remembered that there was class struggle and it was important and shaped the way we lived and etc. I believe that what happened with the dictatorship of uh, Pinochet was that the main uh, spaces in which the class organized itself were, of course, beaten up and destroyed uh, intentionally by politics of the state. And in that way, generated a really tense relationship between the organizations of the, of, of the class and the state. And I think... That what's happened in the feminist movement has been different because we do not think that there's a subjectivity or a political identity that comes before what we have to do. Uh, but we believe uh, like it's the other way around. We have to create the conditions of unity. And that means that if our class is fragmented or diverse because it's organized in several conflicts that has no apparent relation with each other, what we had to do was not assume that we have an identity or assume that we have an interest that's shared between all of us, but we had to produce the conditions for that uh, unity to emerge. So what we did, for example, in the last year, uh, preparing the conditions for the struggle, and that's the recovery of uh, 
historical weapon of the working class was to try to articulate those differentiated experiences of organizations of the class that actually exist and putting putting them uh, in relation and making them discuss the same questions. That was uh, something that was really powerful, no? What's the way in which uh, you live your life in the place that you live in or organize yourself? Why is your life precarizada? Uh, precaritized. Precaritized. And who has the responsibility of that to, to be the way it is? So by doing that exercise, what we tried to do was uh, to set the conditions for a conversation, for a dialogue. And from that dialogue to produce a common horizon. And also we didn't like said, I don't know, we prepared this meeting that was the women in struggle. And we didn't make it a feminist encounter because we knew that feminism had to be something that was a consequence of that encounter and of that political shared political activity rather than the rather than the premise of it yeah yeah you, you make an interesting and i think very important argument that that feminism and i think we could also say racial justice and indigenous struggles we could go we could list a lot of things in this way are not a divisive or partial sort sort of politics but rather a politics that actually helps to unify a working class that is already actually divided. And one way you argue that feminism can do this is by building a bridge between those who are working in formal so-called productive jobs and those working in the, the more hidden sphere of, of social reproduction. Explain your argument here and from both of you about the role, the role of feminism in, in connecting these different areas of, of working class life. Last year, um, with the Coordinadora Feminista 8M, that's the space that I'm part of, we um, defined what our aims were going to be for the year in terms of building up the process for the struggle on March 8th. And one of those were to transversalize a feminist perspective within the social movement. So what we did uh, was to build an agenda of moments in which we were going to open up discussions precisely around this topic, around the way in which the social movement had been thinking about itself and trying to move the terms of that discussion and that self-conscious of the movement. So we organized in the first part of the year the um, first women's and pensions uh, encounter. There was a meeting in which we discussed the pension system that we uh, to, uh, have today, that's the IFP. Which means administrator of, of, uh, have it, have it, of pension funds, more like Yeah, we did that with coordination with the Coordinadora Nomás IFP. That's the space in which uh, the working class organizes itself to end that system. And in discussing the pension system, we um, proposed that a new pension system had to be funded, funded in a principle that was the main aim of a pension system has to be to ensure 
the, rep the reproduction of the life of people that, that uh, perform the works that sustain life itself. With that knowledge, or with that uh, point of view, what we did, in fact, was to connect those uh, sorts of differentiated works, like the productive work and the social reproduct uh, reproductive work, and say uh, they're all the same in one level. Of course, they're different, but they're all the same in the level that they sustain life, day-to-day -day life. And in that sense, uh, women that perform work at home or not at home, maybe in the streets or whatever, are uh, performing works that sustain life and as such as are part of the working class itself. So the notion of the working class has to change. And I believe that's what a feminism, feminist movement has practic practically um, proposed. That common sense in the left in Chile is that uh, it's like everything in Chile before the dictatorship was amazing and then dictatorship came and and we were completely fucked. And so social movements changed and, and we lost every social right and human right that we used to have. And that's simply not true. I mean, Chile was a capitalist country before the dictatorship too. It's not that capitalism began or oppression in general began in Chile with the dictatorship. Maybe except from amazing and exhilarating, but also tragical days of uh, the popular unity government, uh, most of the time in Chile, since it's uh, the beginnings of the republic, has been a, a country of uh, dispossession and destruction of, of everything and on the part of, uh, of the workers and the peasants and the oppressed groups. So... I think that's one of the narratives that has to be challenged in Chile because we tend to think of uh, recovering what's lost as if there's a, like a lost uh, paradise lost somewhere. And so I think one of the consequences of that narrative is that the left doesn't see the changes in the working class because it tends to understand that politics is about the confrontation between political projects such as neoliberalism versus democracy, for instance as if what we have is basically a confrontation between two political wills or political projects in a vacuum. And so they're just like fighting and confronting different projects. And it's not that the dictatorship change. I mean, a lot of things, especially for the working class composition, is uh, it happened during the dictatorship is a global process that was already happening. And perhaps took a, an extreme form in Chile, but, exactly. not a, but not a unique form. Exactly. And so that means that you have, you have a new working class, and that, for me, explains the behavior of the social movements. And, and actually, th the fact that the labor movement and that the working class is politically organized, not only and, and less and less in political parties and, and more in social movements. Because if you don't have a strong labor movement, if you don't have a lot of unions, I mean, the union uh, affiliation rates in Chile are around 10% and 11%. If you don't take the public sector, which is obviously uh, mostly unionized, right? When you don't have a strong union movement, the working class has to find new avenues for organization, right? And then social movements come as a space for politicization and, and opening a space for st struggle that it's not the political 
parties or the or the unions. It's not that they don't exist; they actually exist, and we've seen in the past years like a rebirth of of politics in a way with uh, with Frente Amplio offering a space for that for that uh, kind of political struggle and tactics. What I what I believe is that what the left is lacking sometimes in Chile is understanding this new composition of the working class as a at the same time a single class with with multiple experiences and differences and not only differences but but also inequalities within itself. So you have I would say you have like three sectors in the left. One, the old, more orthodox, you would say anti-capitalist of revolutionary left which is marginal right now, more sectarian, that is basically saying there's no changes in the working class. The working class is the same as before. And so they are uh, like they are resistant to feminism, for instance. They think that that's divisive. And, and an example of this sort of force in Chile would be? There's the Central Clasista de Trabajadores. They produced an analysis of um, the uh, March 8th struggle. And they said that... And a strike is a fight between the employer and the workers. Women uh, can organize for their own specific problems and matters. But it's not a strike. And for that, <laughs> they have to create an, a department or whatever to organize themselves. So they have one and they have uh, the space for them to come up with these visions on the particularity of being a woman. Uh, but that's not a strike. And is this a, tr a Trotskyist group? or? No, it's not. Uh, no, it's um radical left. Um... Different strands of whatever was left from the 80s and 90s of the left in Chile, which is basically marginal. But it used to have a, a strong presence in, in, in some sectors of the student movement. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean... You know, there's always like sects everywhere in the in the left, yes. right? But then, so you have the the, the old the, the concept of an old class. The working class is the same as before, and so we have to keep organizing as <clears throat> students and workers. That means unions and then pobladores or, or the communities, right? By these like old kind of sector exactly, sectoral exactly. model, and maybe also women. Yeah, and women as a new sector, and then sometimes the youth and 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 even the indigenous people. So you start like adding different sectors then you have a, an extreme uh, the extreme opposite which is the left the, the renovated left that now says there's no working class the working class is uh was completely not even like transformed it was uh, eliminated by the dictatorship by the social and economic transformations and then we only have middle class different sectors the extreme poor and so you only have like a socioeconomic uh strata that you have to like uh address them with public policies. And would right? this be like the Socialist Party? or That would be the, the Concertación, yeah. like definitely, and even some sectors of the Frente Amplio yeah. that subscribe to more like uh, the Negrian multitude uh, idea of a working class that it doesn't have a shared, as Alondra was saying, that it doesn't have like a shared uh, historical material interest, right? And so you have an, uh, like a denial of the existence of working class. And that means that you don't have a, an actual historical project to base the, the like, uh, political alternative on. And I think that's the... Because there's no more historical subject. Exactly. So there's only like this, again, this political vacuum where like you have a basically advertising communication specialists 
trying to build a, a people, right? To like uh, yeah. construct this idea of a people around whatever like conjuncture you have every time. I think that there's a, this middle like ground, like there's a space in between those extremes. Uh, that is this idea of, uh, okay, the, there is a working class, but it, it has a lot of differences inside. And that means you have to take those into account. If you want to build working class unity and if you want to build stronger social movements with a shared uh, perspective, a shared program and a shared struggle, you need to take those differences into account and not just see see them as div divisive identities or whatever reactionary idea of the difference with, within the working class. Yeah, because it, it's not feminism that created the, that gendered the current capitalist order. It's capitalism that, that did that. We should uh, step back a, a little bit before we get too much deeper into this and just explain for, for listeners that, that Chile has, has one of Latin America's strongest feminist movements, really probably one of the strongest in the entire world. Alondra, can you, can you explain the scope and nature of the movement here and, and why you think it is that it has become so powerful in, in Chile of all of all places? Well, the feminist movement in Chile has a long history. Uh, it, um, the first organized expressions of feminism were in the early 20, uh, 20th century uh, with um, the, a feminist movement, or s sort of, uh, in the Pampa Salitrera. No idea how to say that in English. The, but the salt trite, the mines, which was the major boom industry in Chile in the very early 20th century. Yeah. Late 19th and uh, late 19th, 20th, yeah, yeah, before they figured out how to synthesize it and then uh -huh. not so great for yeah, Chile. And then, so turn, great. and then we turn to copper. And everything will happen again. Yeah, uh, yeah wait, don't learn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There, um, there were the first uh, organized feminists, working class feminists, anarchists, anti-clerical. Uh, yeah. Um, so that's the the first like uh, moment of the feminist movement in Chile. Then, in 1935, uh, there was the MEMCH, Movimiento por Emancipación de la Mujer Chilena, a movement that organized itself for many many things. One of them was uh, uh, political emancipation, uh, the vote, but also abortion, also uh, economic emancipation, also I, I don't remember the whole program, but it was like really complex and uh, involved several uh, elements of uh, women's life in those days and that movement was huge. It organized women all throughout the country and in the cities and in uh, like the country and it was uh, really powerful and in 1948 it uh, gained the women's right to vote and then it declined very, very late very late yep everything in chile is like that yeah we got a like the um, divorce law like in uh, 2005 there you go yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you all have your work cut out for you in the feminist movement here <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really long 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 uh 
That brings up two different things that I want to talk about. Before we get to 
the exodus of feminists from traditional left organizations. I want to ask about about why it was that that femicides, the the murder of women, became the the initial the the initial issue that feminists were mobilizing around in, in Chile. You write, Alondra, that that femicides are the most brutal expression of of a more expansive structural violence. Can you say a little bit about about why it is that femicides were the thing? I think it's not transparent. It's not self-evident. Why? I believe it's a question, an open question. So I have an hypothesis Mm -hmm. uh, that's mine. (laughs) But what I believe is that uh, the femicide uh, has been, like for decades, a problem in Latin America, uh, of course. But what what happened is that the um, heterosexual relations in, in our country and also in Latin America had been uh, going through this crisis uh, because of the progressive uh, autonomy of women in conditions of precarity and poverty and whatever. So it was this contradiction between women's social emancipation being accompanied by general impoverishment and precarization for everyone, women and men alike across the board. Yes, that's what I believe. And that's uh, that ha- uh, that produced a collapse of the terms of the relations. And that happens in the relation, like uh, in the private relation between men and women that sustain uh, heterosexual relations and stable and so on, uh, but also a more general process of crisis of all the institutions in which that uh, heterosexual relation reproduces itself. So education, the streets, uh, the public space in general. And everywhere that crisis uh, uh, began to spread and like to mobilize women in, in a sort of alliance, political alliance that was funded by both a limit and uh, a potentiality. Uh, the limit was uh, to say no, to, to stop the violence that was part, a constitutive part of the reproduction of the heterosexual relation, and also the potentiality of encountering one another and developing a politics of their own, a feminist politic. So that's why I believe um, feminism of I'm sorry, femicides, uh, became the core of uh, feminism because it's uh, the most radical moment of that crisis. Yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, with Alondra. And, and also I, I would add uh, maybe a more superficial layer. It's a, there's been an, a permanent campaign against femicides uh, organized by the, the Chilean network against uh, violence towards women. Uh, that's been around for maybe f- 10, 15 years. And I think it has had some impact in society. It definitely has had some impact in the social movements and the left, even in some sectors of the 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 establishment political parties. Because uh, as Alondra was saying, some of the women who struggled against the dictatorship organized in the autonomous feminist movement in the 80s uh, then became officials in the in the government, in the Concertación government, the administrations of the 90s, 
working in the National Women's Service and all, and and and, and maybe some NGOs <coughs> and in other places. So there's a there's a continuity despite the whole, the tremendous difference. There's a, a some continuous uh, threat between the, that struggle, the autonomous struggle in the 80s, the more institutionalized and NGO struggle or movements of the 90s, and then a, a new feminism in in Chile that in my, like from my perspective, it has been able to, has accomplished something that the left has not accomplished in so many, in decades, like after the dictatorship. And that's basically being able to express the diversity of social movements of the people of the working class i would say in in a single like in a single sentence like like when you see that during the past year there was a, a huge mobilization of forces from the feminist movement that are, but that actually mobilized more than just women and it also made a lot of men very un uncomfortable with the with the process and so we were forced to like do and say and like act and learn about uh, not not just feminism but our own reality when you see that there are thousands of women preparing a strike for March 8th this year and then like th hundreds of thousands in the streets and that they were marching not just against violence against women not just against femicides and and abuse and all that Uh, which are definitely at the center of the demands of the movement, but they were also marching and rallying around uh, issues like the pension system and issues like uh, the destruction <coughs> of the environment because it's completely connected with the murder of uh, leaders in this in the south, indigenous leaders defending their communities and their and their ways of life. And so, my my impression is that the feminist movement has been so strong in Chile in the past two years, because it has taken to itself to do that, that the left hasn't been able to do. That is like work for unity uh, in, a, in a practical and actual way. How is it that a movement that is initially centered around an extremely important, but in some ways very minimal demand, stop killing us, connects so organically to far more maximalist demands about total transformation of society and economy. In that way, it seems somewhat similar to, to Black Lives Matter, which is also, which is premised around what should be a, a very basic and undebatable demand to stop killing us, but then has this much broader, broader vision. How, how do those levels of demands connect within the movement? I believe what we have done, it's, um, uh, when I say we, I mean, like all the sectors that has been organizing to discuss the terms uh, in which the feminist movement in Chile is, is organized, what we had to do was to fight because the relation between that uh, minimum uh, demand of not killing us and uh, the possibility of creating uh, more general uh, perspectives was not given. It was not something that was... Uh, agreed by uh, everybody in the feminist movement. Some people in the feminist movement said and and argued that what we had to do was to focus on that, on extreme violence against women. And what uh, some other sectors of the uh, movement said, but when you organize women and we articulate with it, 
with each other. What happens necessarily is that the problems and the struggles of day-to-day -day life became, uh, become the, the concerns uh, that we have to take, uh, to take care of, to take upon. And because uh, what we had, we had been doing was to articulate different expressions of organized women, not just women that organize themselves uh, around violence, but also women that organize themselves around another things, but that were also organizing around violence. And what, when we did that, those women uh, started to say, yeah, of course it's uh, against violence, but I also don't have a place to live, and that's violence. And also I, um, I don't know, I, I have to protect my territory, my land, the seeds uh, with which I feed my family and whatever. And uh, also I have to, to fight for uh, working conditions that don't threaten me with losing everything I have uh, every day if I don't behave uh, correctly and whatever in work. So it was kind of a process that occurred naturally when we created new conditions for the feminist movement to organize itself. I believe it was a consequence of the aim that we had to articulate different expressions of organized women, uh, and not just uh, organized that we, uh, women that came along and and like lit a candle for this femicide or that femicide, uh, or went to the streets, but uh, because we organized a movement that was like more solid and had a perspective and had uh, a commonality that was built and not given. I just wanted to, like, uh, there, there was a, a moment uh, right before the strike, the, the, the March 8 strike this year, that the government, they started to, like, the, the president and also the, the women's ministry, she would say, and the president, other people in the government, they would say, This movement, the March 8 strike, this it, it, it looks like a politicized thing. It's 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 very ideological, and they are not focusing on the the women's issues, right? Because they are talking about pensions and they are talking about housing and 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 environment and and the economy. These are not these are not women's issues. This is what they were saying, right? Which is ironic to hear from a conservative government because they wouldn't even accept women's issues on narrow liberal terms of like abortion. And things. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But yeah. but when you but when that uh, ministry uh, of women and gender equality for this conservative government just like was she was appointed, her program, her proposals were were basically like the 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 minim, It would say it, I would say the minimal program of any liberal feminism. So basically like breaking the the, the glass ceiling and, and like more women in the corporate uh, government. And so for them, it's basically like formal equality in those terms, right? And so all of these other issues were not women's issues. And that's that's one one thing that I wanted to, to say, but also there's a, a comrade from the feminist movement. She She's a survivor from the dictatorship and she's part of an organization of survivors And she always says that the, 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 this feminist movement and, and any feminist movement should be uh, like a memory of the future in the sense that the struggle of uh, those comrades who were tortured and killed and disappeared in, during the dictatorship should not just be commemorated and remembered as tortured people and disappeared people 
but also as uh, as uh, social fighters and and people who struggled for something, and so repositioning socialism, for instance, as a horizon of those struggles in the dictatorship, dictatorship, and not just resistance, mere resistance against the dictatorship, stop killing us, right? That repositioning socialism or a revolutionary horizon is a way to uh, reconnect the struggles of today in a different way. And and I think that's another reason why uh, the feminist movement ha- has had such a, a strong, uh, I would say, like it has been rooted in so in this in the contemporary social movements, because it's thinking about that horizon and not just understanding women as women as a fixed identity, uh, but understanding them and themselves as uh, complex individuals and groups. And I would say it. You can see I, I could see like a parallel. This is, I'm just like making this up, but it's like a trade union feminism versus class feminism, right? Like there's like a class struggle feminism in, in the sense that it's trying to think and, and organize around global issues in, in a political per- perspective and not just like individual and and things that appeal to your immediate individual uh, experiences. There's a few things that you, you touched on there that I want to talk about. One, that you seem to be if I read you right, hinting at something, which is that the the dictatorship's brutal repression of the left here can often get sort of sanitized within a human rights framework. Is that fair to say, where the where the actual politics that were defeated by the dictatorship are sort of erased in favor of just seeing people as generic humans who were exactly. Who were victims? And this is and this is the result of having the like the people who organize a transition from the dictatorship to a political transition from the dictatorship to a, a democratic government uh, so to speak is the same people who go, uh, were like governing the country governing the country for the the next 20 years after 1990 and so the the official memory of the dictatorship has to be sanitized because they are responsible for completely, I would say, like the basing and, and removing any sort of revolutionary edge to the struggle against the dictatorship. It was basically against the dictator. And not for socialism not for anything else. or all the other things that people are fighting for. I agree 100% with Pablo, but also thinking of the same uh, compañera, of the same women, uh, woman that uh, is part of this organization of survivors of the dictatorship, the sanitization of the violence that was used against organized people was also neutralization of the gender component of that violence. And so the sexual violence that was specifically directed towards the women that were organizing and that had a political specific uh, component was also erased uh, from the table and was not discussed. And when we discuss it, and we discuss uh, the patriarchal dimension of that violence, we can associate that that dimension of patriarchal violence with the need for uh, patriarchal violence in general within the system that we live in today. Yeah, very important point. You wrote something that I want to talk about now because it relates to this whole issue of sort of why the Chilean feminist movement is something way beyond or even really opposed to liberal feminism, you write that the Chilean feminist movement is, after a lot more than merely fighting for gender equality, because, quote, 
When we look at our lives, there is no masculinity that serves as a model to which we might aspire. It's everyone's lives that are subjected to precarization. This isn't really, I think, powerful but complicated argument. What are you saying here about the relationship between the economic system and the construction of gender roles and about the way that that a sort of simplistic gender egalitarianism reaffirms rather than really challenges capitalism? Well, I was discussing not to uh, not with liberal feminism, but uh, with men in political uh, leftist organizations because they tend to believe that what we want uh, is equality. Interesting. And we don't want equality because uh, maybe we want uh, in some level, but in general, no, because the way that gender relations are organized today in Chile are constitutive of how we organize life. And if we want to challenge how we organize life, we, of course, do not want to be in the same position that our, that our companions are, because that position is not neutral. It's not like a desirable position. It's a position that is produced by the same re relation in which we are currently living. And so what we're saying when we say that, and we have said that uh, in several moments, is that ours is a universalistic uh, perspective. And so we... It's for everyone's liberation. For everyone's liberation. And that means uh, that even within the political organizations of the left, we do not want to, like, igualar la cancha. That's the way... Level which, the playing field. Yeah, level the playing field. Because the playing field is all wrong. And uh, because we don't want... We do not want to be in a, in a subordinated position and, and simply, like, question that subordination. We want to question why that subordination is organized in that way and why should we even have... Uh, subordinated positions within the working class itself. We touched on this a little earlier, but you, Alondra, mentioned this mass exodus of women and feminists from left organizations in recent years. And you write that it's no coincidence that that emerged in the wake of this exodus. What happened in terms of feminists within these longer-standing left organizations? Violence happened, I believe. Well, feminism had been uh, struggling and fighting within the political organizations of the left for decades. But um, recently, what happened was that uh, we had this pro ongoing process of recognizing each other and talking about our experiences and talking about uh, violence and talking about how, how we've been abused and harassed in our lives, etc. And we found out that we had been abused or harassed or whatever in the organizations that we were in on behalf of our, so like, our compañeros, our... Like male comrades. Yeah. So what that produced was, of course, anger and indignation and uh, demand that was targeted us, uh, to our organizations to solve that and to solve that uh, in, wh in whichever way that could be possible. And like most political organizations did nothing or were really slow or were like erratic or, or 
made several mistakes in regarding this uh, situation and, and those uh, allegations. So women got tired of waiting and they left, but they were militants, so they were not going to go back to their houses and like forget about politics. They were going to organize themselves again. And that's um, sort of what happened. So the same thing that had been the ongoing process that we, that led to women going uh, to the streets was the process that ended up with several left organizations broken up or disappeared or whatever. Yeah, our organization wa was really big before the. You both were in the same organization. Yeah, yeah, and our organization was like large. And it's now really little and was one of the little ones that survived to this, but with high costs, of course. I want to talk about the the pension struggle here. What is NOMAS AFP, in English, no, no More Pension Fund Administration? What is the current social security and pension system here? And... What is the movement's popular law initiative, which is in, which aims to transform the whole system as it currently exists? So there are no pensions in Chile. Uh, that's that's the. So what are they administering? Yeah, yeah. Well, they call it a pension, <laughs> but it's not exactly a pension. I mean, that's one thing that the dictatorship actually destroyed in Chile is the the pension system. There used to be a, a, a social security uh, pension system. But it was destroyed during the dictatorship. Uh, we used we we're like we're used to say that it was privatized, but it's it's not really the same pension. It's not like it exists private. in private form. It just it, it was, was destroyed. destroyed, and they what they build on it and ba and using the same money basically from the workers is a uh, private institutions that would channel the money from the workers uh, every month to the private corporations through complex finance systems. So it's basically using that money to fund the private enterprises in Chile, just like that. So it, it, it was a, a huge impulse for the economic, economic uh, as they call it, the medical in, in the 80s in Chile, because they, they had like access to massive funds at a time where where they wouldn't have a lot of like uh, funds available. They basically created all this liquidity by expropriating this money from the working class and putting it into private investment. Exactly. And so wow. for that system, the pensions are a collateral damage. I mean, they have to like save face and like pay pensions uh, every month to uh, the workers who are not working anymore, but it's not the, their business. It's not pensions, right? And so, and that's one thing in like a, a global terms. But then the systems also, the system also changed in terms that it's not a a pension system. It's a private individual's uh, insurance system. So you basically make a, a, a monthly contribution to your own individual account. And then when you retire, they make some weird calculation that you're going to die when you're 120 and so they divide that money in monthly installments and you get like if you're lucky 30% of what you were getting like in your like in your regular wage the past 5 or 10 years so it's basically a massive process of permanent expropriation of uh 
we would say surplus value from the working class in Chile. So in that context, what you have is that when you have a so-called pension system that is based on a private insurance, individual insurance system that is based on whatever you take out of wages plus a profitability in the finance uh, industry, uh, then you have the, the recipe for disaster, right? It's the perfect crisis in the pension system for retired workers because the wages keep going down as well as profitability. And so basically we, we are in, since uh, the crisis in 2008, we are in a deep, deep pension crisis in, in Chile that was so strong that the government in around those years had to create a new, what they call the solidarity pillar, that is basically a public, uh, public funds to poor people who haven't been able to contribute to their own individual accounts or that their wage is not enough to pay good pensions. And so basically the state is subsidizing what the private pension companies should be paying. So we have uh, like, uh, and that seems like a progressive move, right? But it's basically... It, it's subsidizing the even more and more. the private system. Exactly. And so that prompted that a lot of unions, mostly in the public sector or in uh, more established sectors and industries like the banks, the, the, the workers from banks and financial institutions, but also public workers started organizing around this pension crisis, especially since the recession in 2008 and uh, how a lot of pension funds were lost because of the climate in, in profitability, right? And so in 2014, we see the emergence of the, the Coordinadora Nacional de Trabajadores No Más FP, the National Coordination of Workers No Más FP, No More AFP, the, the pension <coughs> funds administrators. It was a small movement for a couple of years, although it started to coordinate several big unions, mostly public sector unions, which are not exactly unions, are like associ associations of workers, but they 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 are the 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 similar unions in the public sectors. And they're more they're more powerful than the private sector here, in part because the private sector unions, as insofar as I've heard, are incredibly fragmented like you'll have one shop which because of Chilean labor law which ideally would be represented by one union you'll have like 10 different unions you're supposed to have yeah you're supposed to have one union per shop or, or or a company but you can have more and so that it's not just I mean in in the, <coughs> in the states you would have a one union for several companies in the same sector right But then in Chile, you would have only just one union per company in general. And that's the best case scenario. Exactly. Because you can have several unions in one same shop. Uh, but also companies can can be internally fragmented and so have like different personalities in terms of their relation with the state. And so for each one of them, they have a union. And they'll have contracts with each of the different union locals or whatever and uh not to mention subcontracting practices and outsourcing and all that because you have different unions for all of them and then if you don't have enough workers like 25 or 30 workers you can't have a union so 
it, it's pretty it's pretty shitty for for the labor movement in Chile. And so and and well, and that's one of the reasons as we were discussing before why workers sometimes start organizing around other class issues not from the unions or not like in the context context of unions. And so this no mas AFP movement began to gain some traction, especially in 2016, after there was a scandal, like a uh, more like a media scandal of one of a former public worker, uh, um, like a official from one of a, like an official, an, a high rank official mm. of the prison. It's one of the um, one of the like forces, uh, police forces for the yeah. for the for the jails. So she was a she was a high rank official, and she was getting a retirement that was like I don't know, like a hundred times what a regular worker would get. But also, she was a uh, she used to be married to one a socialist uh, politician, so it was like a perfect storm for it for the for this uh, pension crisis, right? I mean, for the media, it was a huge scandal. A lot of people were outraged by this, and this prompted huge movement sort of like the they, they actually adopted adopted the term indignados like in Spain and they called for a march and then and it was like autonomously uh, call uh, like an autonomous call in the in social media but then the coordinadora no más AFP also joined this call for a march and it was huge like before March 8 this year it was the biggest march like before uh, like after the dictatorship, and so there was this this pre existing organization to get rid of the AFP and replace it with a real pension system, but it was small. But then the historical circumstances changed, and the sort of popular energy came came right to you. Exactly, and what happened was that uh, more 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 unions, especially public sectors and big national unions, joined the movement. But also there was an impulse from the grassroots organizations that started organizing in their own like territory in their own communities they started organizing locals of the coordinadora right so it became a more a stronger national movement with local presence and and though and that's interesting because you have the same again the same working class organizing in unions when they can and then organizing in different social movements, sort of like politicized experiments in on the ground to fight for the same cause, but like organized differently. Because you have everybody in the movement is a worker. The only ones who are interested in the pensions are workers, right? And so you have workers who are not part of unions because they are precarized uh, workers in, in, infor in the informal sector, like women who work at home but don't have a, a wage. And they are organizing, or retired people, they're organizing in this grassroots like section of the movement. Well, and this is also an issue that connects very easily to the feminist struggle in the sense that it connects productive workers who are recognized as workers under capitalism and workers whose work is hidden from view under capitalism, reproductive workers, people working in the home, care workers, what is the relationship between the, the feminist and the pension movement looked like? It's hard to say what's the relation between the, between the movements because um, maybe the most organized sectors of the movement. We have been trying to work together to like open these spaces like the meeting 
of women's and pensions. And then in our program for the strike, the, um, the issue of pensions was one of the main demands of, of, the, of the strike. But uh, the movements themselves are not really connected. They're not uh, that connected because I believe it's, uh, it's, it's been hard to, for these coordinadoras uh, that Pablo was describing to actually be over transformed uh, by this powerful energy of the popular movement that that has not happened in that way and I believe that those difficulties that are difficulties between uh, bureaucratic orientations or some orientations that do not take into account that energy as a source of of uh, the ongoing process of organizing itself uh, has also been a, an obstacle in uh, making a relation, a, a productive relation between these two movements. And is that because of obstacles in the leadership of, of both movements? I'm not quite sure. To, uh, tomorrow we will have a, a meeting with uh, the Coordinadora Feminista 8M. That's uh, one of the spaces that organized the strike of March 8th, the Nomas FP. Uh, coordinadora and also other spaces like organizations that uh, revolve around housing and stuff to think how we can connect our our struggles it's hard because of uh, because we understand differently i believe the potentialities of our movements especially the potentialities of the feminist movement of course mm-hmm. That's what I believe. I think there is a, a potential connection in terms of uh, they are both movements that point to the similar crisis, right? Which is, uh, I would say, a crisis in social reproduction. Uh, pensions are basically the way workers reproduce themselves generationally after they after they stop working, and the way that the working class in general reproduces itself, like in those moments that it's not working. So. And that's definitely, I mean, that is in itself a, a feminist concern, right? And so I think that there's still some sectors of the leadership of Nomas FP, there's a resistance to to this feminist idea that the struggle for pensions is not an economic, merely economic struggle. It's not about like a different moment of your wage life but it's about a general moment of reproduction. And I think that's where the connection is between the feminist movement and the whatever like social movement around pensions. Is it also fair to say that within the feminist movement, there's a kind of inverse resistance to seeing a quote-unquote economic issue like pensions as a women's issue, as a feminist issue? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, some women that were part of uh, March 8th, uh, March and stuff, uh, didn't understand why pensions was one of the, of the demands of the struggle. But I believe it's, it's really, it's a few, a few women. It's not, it's not really like a huge resistance because I believe today it, the feminist movement and its uh, core concerns are really open. I don't think that it's really established what is a feminist concern or a women's concern. I don't think it's set in stone. So uh, it's open for discussion, debate and, and 
participation of, of women from different places. But I, I do believe that some sectors of the feminist movement tend to see uh, those concerns as unionists. Some sectors have pointed out that our feminism, the feminism that uh, is concerned with work and work conditions and pensions and stuff. Marxist feminism. Uh, yeah, <laughs> socialist <laughs> feminism uh, is like uh, a union's feminism. And they also see this as an economic problem. And they also have reductionist notion of uh, the uh, capitalism, uh, capitalist work of way of organizing our lives. It's, it's interesting because uh, socialist feminists sort of have to confront reductionism on two fronts, on the gender and economic front. Yeah, every time. Pablo, I wanted to talk more about no mass, no more AFP, in English, no more pension fund administration. What, who makes up the the leadership of the, the coordinadora? Who is your base and how do you organize them? The coordinadora was founded five years ago. Yeah, the coordinadora was founded in, in 2014 after several years of trying to organize around the the crisis of the pension system in Chile. It was founded by a series of big unions. And when I say big unions, it's because in Chile we have hundreds of thousands of unions because the unions are reduced to... They can only negotiate with the with their, their company, their single company. But in the case of some public sector unions, you have large organizations that have more than half of the workers in a specific sector, in public hospitals, in, in other uh, sectors of, of the public service. Because in many workplaces in, in Chile, because of Chilean labor law, there might be multiple unions representing multiple fractions of, of workers across a single workplace, which is obviously not very good for labor's Crazy. power. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's, uh, that's uh, part of, uh, of the dictatorship work, right? They, they did that. They changed the, the way unions could be organized. And basically what they did was to reduce the scope of the union to a single workplace. That's one thing. So there's no legal collective bargaining on an industry level. You, you can't do that legally. There are workers like the port workers in Chile that have been able to organize de facto unions on a national level that has negotiated with the state, both the state and the, the, the companies in the port in the port sector, right? Those are uh, like only a few examples of that. Most of the workers are not organizing unions and the ones that are, their unions are very weak. So the Coordinadora was founded by unions in places in industries that were more organized and the public sectors, like the bank workers and people working in, in the public hospitals. And written a couple of years ago, the, the teachers, the National Teachers Association, joined the Coordinadora. So the, the main leadership of the Coordinadora is made of representatives of those unions, but also as we were saying before, the, the movement had a peak around uh, 2016, uh, three years ago, when we had big demonstrations. 
hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, maybe around a million in the country. And at that time, the movement needed a, a new way to organize itself, not just with national representatives of the unions, but also organizing locally. And so the coordinadores started to creating what we call comunales, which are basically city-wide or local, or uh, you would say on a municipality level, chapters of the coordinadora. And that was uh, created also by people from those unions, but also local activists who are already organizing around pensions or other social causes, other struggles in those places. And so the coordinadora became, at some point, a place that local coordinadoras those comunales, those spaces on a local level, they became a space for organizing around pensions. But since the demand for a new pension system is so, it's like it's so broad, it's a demand that is so broad that it calls for a lot of people to organize around that. Mm -hmm. So it's not just people who are in unions, because a lot of people are not in unions. But there's still, but there's there's still workers who have an interest in the horrific state of pensions in, exactly. in Chile today. Yeah, people who are retired even yeah. are part of the coordinadora. They 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 take part in the in the struggle too. So that means that the base for the for this struggle is not just the labor movement in the traditional sense, it's the workers in a more broad sense. It's whoever is dependent on work and wage or who is dependent on someone who is dependent on on work and wage to live that is involved in this in this movement so that's very interesting yeah well that, that that's an interesting point you just made because i i think it's very revealing uh, alondra that the, that the feminist movement gravitated towards the pension issue early on are pensions an issue like education and health care that that can tie the feminist movement to other working class struggles by connecting the, the fights between productive and, and social reproductive workers? One of the reasons uh, why we moved towards uh, the pensions issue was because the way in which uh, the pensions movement, Nomas FP, was organized, kept um, outside of the scope the issue of uh, re reproductive labor and the way that labor sustained life uh, itself. So, in order to broaden the demands of, of Nomas FP and to take into account that labor, uh, we created this uh, meeting of women's and pensions and also took that demand as part of the program for the strike. I believe that's because of the relation between not only productive and social reproduction spheres or aspects of life, but also because of the need to engage women in some of the discussions that were that had been really moving for the social movement itself. So we could connect those fights and also help the force or the power of the feminist movement and the women's movement to encourage and dynamize the pensions movement that was declining. 
This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond, and you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by, well, good question who. You frequently hear ads right here from Verso, University of California Press, and N Plus One. We are now looking for new publishers to advertise with us. Do you write or work for a magazine or book publisher? If you do, can you think of any group of people more interested in buying smart left-wing books and magazines than Dig listeners? Because, well, I sure can't. If you want to advertise your media product on The Dig, email me at firstnamelastname at gmail.com. That's danieldenver at gmail.com. That is also, incidentally, where you may send me listener letters, which, as long as they are not intensely mean, I always do my best to respond to. Okay, thank you, and back to the show. To what degree have both of you found, I guess, obstacles in two different directions? On the one hand, have you encountered people in the labor movement who who don't see social reproduction work that's currently un, unwaged as actual work and thus have trouble making those connections? And on the other end, have you encountered feminist activists who say pensions, that's a that's a labor issue, not a women's issue. We should just be focusing on issues like abortion and violence and, and issues that are narrowly, conventionally understood as, as women's issues, feminist issues. Yeah, I would say some people in the labor movement, it's not that they don't see unwaged work as, as non-actual work, it's that they don't see that work. They just simply don't, they simply don't see it. It's like it's not there, right? It's an invisible activity. And that means, and I'm saying this because they don't see that most of the people involved in the in the movement and most of the leaders on a local level are women. Because women are involved in, I mean, are concerned, directly concerned, and maybe doubly concerned by the problem of pensions, right? If someone who is, who they are in charge of or who they have to take care of in, in their house or in their community has a miserable pension, they have to work more in order to take care of that person, in order to buy medicine, in order to sustain them, right? So it's an immediate issue for them. And they have been on the on the front of that struggle. But as in the labor movement in general, the leadership is mostly men and older men. And that's uh, that's a, that's a it's it's a fact. It's it's the way it is right now, and some of those leaders have been instrumental in building a strong strong movement, but you can see the contradictions now, not just because they are old men, but because since they are all men, they seem to they don't see the need the necessity of feminism right now. They tend to because they don't see it, they don't see that work. Uh, and because they don't see those leaders on a local level being mostly women, they don't see the necessity of feminism for their movement. They see it as a, it's, it's very important, they say. Right now, there's no 
Like there, there are no changes without the feminist movement. They say that, but it's like external from them. It's another thing. It's not, it's not their stuff. So it's not so much that there are conservative currents within the labor movement that would have a problem around, say, demands for abortion. No, there rights. are. Oh, there are. Also. No, there are. Yeah. yeah, there are leaders, men and women, who opposed talking about uh, abortion in their unions because that would alienate some of the their bases. So. They're basically thinking in electoral terms within the union, right? It's like they don't want to lose their voters for the next election. So they don't want to talk about hard issues, basically. Yeah. And one of the resist the, the ways uh, in which resistance towards broadening uh, the scope of the feminist movement uh, appears, it's uh, an expression of a wider tendency towards what Pablo is now talking about, like um, trying to reduce the demands of the feminist movement, uh, not just saying that the, uh, those demands should be women's demands, but not just women's demands, but all women demands. So not all women are pro-abortion, so we should not talk about abortion at all. Not all women are... Um, This is even against, worse than American liberal feminism. Yeah, it's worse because wow. we are we are so conservative and so Catholic and uh, religious and so on. So, uh, yeah. So mainly, what they are saying is that we can only talk about one thing, and it's violence. And it's not violence in in a wider sense. Uh, it's violence like uh, one. Like one person murdering another person, like a man murdering like, a woman. Yeah, okay. and that's femicide, and that's what we are allowed to talk about because even others or other forms of violence that are more subtle but that are present every day in our lives are subject for debate and are not taken as a systemic issue. But even the most right-wing political parties in Chile are not on record supporting the literal murder of individual women by individual men. No, but they are saying that those men are are sick. Yeah. They are they're like weird men that for some un unexplainable reason did that horrible thing and but should be like or killed by the state or uh imprisoned and that's the end of the the issue. We should like demand that and be calm with it because yeah they're deviations from good masculinity which is for their perspective the normative masculinity and thus the state the masculine state needs to reassert itself vis-a-vis -vis these transgressive bad men who harm women by killing those bad men rather than seeing these kind of bad men as actually perhaps exemplary of certain dominant forms Of masculinity, and not not only masculinity, but but expressive of relations that are constitutive of the way in which uh, the working class is organized. There's no, of course, working class as a notion or a concept that is uh, hegemonic here in Chile. We cannot talk about working class in public. It's it's like really condemned, but we do take that into analysis. So yeah, that violence is part of the way in which uh, the relations between people of the working class, uh, in which that relations take form. So 
it's a tendency even within the feminist movement. So it's not just uh, because the feminist movement is not, we should not like consider consider it as this like avant-garde movement by itself uh, that that demands or the um, effort of broadening the program and taking into account many aspects of life and so on. It's the result of a work, of a process that we that we have been developing and that we have been developing against many, many tendencies that live within that movement and that are part of the subjectivity that that movement allows to grow. Maybe we should step back for a minute and just lay out what those different currents are within the movement, what their bases of power are, what their level of power is. I don't think they are like that formal currents. I believe those are tendencies of uh, the way in which the subjectivity of the feminist movement is expressed. So that is the proclivity towards accepting some explanations of violence uh, instead of others. It's a proclivity towards articulating movements, towards going to the streets for some kind of demands and not for other kinds of demands. So it's really like, uh, like like something that you can read within the lines, but it's not something that it's already de- there. So you can say there's this uh, liberal feminist current and it has these uh, bases and these are the people that are supportive of that current because it's that's not the way it works. I believe it's more like a, develop, a process of development that it's contradictory and that uh, reveals several layers of politicization within the feminist movement. So what are the layers? <laughs> mm, Try to get you to name names. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the most superficial one is the this layer of what I would call like an H&M feminism, like the feminism that it's produced by the um, circulation of feminist... Uh, merchandise. People that have uh, come to know feminism because of the way it's printed in media, because they can buy some feminist books or search feminism in the internet. Books if you're lucky. If you're that, lucky. That might, be the better, that might be the better end of the H&M, yeah. H&M feminism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Retail feminism. Uh, retail <laughs> feminism. That's, a, that's the most superficial layer, I believe. Then there's another layer that it's uh, the that I'm just inventing these layers. They're not like there, but that's how I. No, no, this them. is sci- This is scientific socialism, <laughs> and we are identifying scientific feminism. Scientific feminism, <laughs> and we're identifying literal strata that exists yeah, yeah. within Chilean you can, you society. Can dig up the layers. <laughs> yeah, you can you can carb. What is it? Carbon dating or whatever to yeah. figure out precisely yeah. how large these layers are. Uh, You're not inventing in, anything. In this invention, this like second layer would be something like um, the feminism that appears in the universities. That is this kind of feminism that is the result of a way of so- socialization of the problems of women and violence and abuse and harassment and so on. And because of the way in which universities universities are organized within themselves, and because of the 
com social composition of the students' movement uh, that is really homogeneous uh, in terms of... More middle and upper middle class. Yes. Because of that, uh, it's really like a sort of feminist politicization that tends to revolve around those issues in isolation of the other issues that are uh, today the main concerns of the working women. And it, so is this the layer that is more sex or gender essentialist and separatist and seems like a Andrea Dworkin-inspired throwback to, for listeners in the U.S., to uh, sort of lesbian separatist politics of a few decades ago? Yeah. They are, like, focused on a notion of womanhood that is really determinist um, by biology and a notion of biology biology also as something that has that it's like um, a true fact that you can women are oppressed because they have vaginas <laughs> and that's the main reason why we live like this and and the main enemy is patriarchy and patriarchy is a system of oppression, so it's like really tautological. And it's like, a, and, and patriarchy is the empowerment of people with penises. Yes, yeah. and people with penises uh, rape people with vaginas, so we should like separate them, and that can help develop an autonom autonomous action of the people with vaginas that are women. That's. The second layer, I, I would say, of politicization, and I would say it's the second and really close to that uh, retail feminism or, or H&M feminism, because it's really easy for that ideology to develop in those places. And because with a, f a little bit of discussion and debate around what the feminist movement in Chile had been in its history and its process, those certainties tend to erode and and fall down. So, well, there's several other layers. I would say the third one is the result of this merger between the education movement and this feminist movement and all the other social movements. And that's the creation of a feminist social movement. And that's the transformation of the issues that concern organizations on a local level, on a work workers' level, on unions, on the places of work and study and so on. I believe that that's the layer in which we, as the Coordinadora Feminista 8M, and we as though that part of the feminist movement are trying to develop something. That making the relations between the power of the feminist movement with the power of the social movement to grow with, uh, with one another. One thing to add is that I think that the student movement, the way the, f the, the feminist wave of 2018 emerged in colleges and universities is like what you were saying is, is similar to the student movement of 2011 in the sense that it it's so itself as dis in a way as disconnected from the rest of the struggles. I have a difference with what you were saying that I don't think that mo I'm, like in Chile most of the students right now are not middle or high class are basically 
the sons and daughters of the working class that had been able to access higher education through debt, basically. And that's going to be the next crisis in Chile, probably. The next debt crisis is not... It's it, it's going to be between the housing debt crisis and the education debt crisis. Well, and just as a quick aside, the Chile is indebted to the extent that it's celebrated as this middle-class miracle. The middle class, to the extent it exists, is very much standing on a mountain of highly unstable debt. I mean, when, when you use a, a credit card here, and credit cards are ubiquitous here in a way that I've rarely seen outside of the U.S. or Europe, people accept them at any store, and you can choose to pay your credit card bill on any given purchase with quotas, meaning with interest. Yes. Right. Like, several in installments with and several interest. installments yeah. with interest. Yeah. Which I've never heard of anywhere. Yeah. So anyways, yeah. Quick, people no. yeah, people who coming from the States or Europe and like in local shops, they offer that alternative and they're like, what? Like what are quotas? What? So just for, for listeners outside of Chile, this is really like a debt deeply debt fueled situation here. But continue. And so and so you have a strong and and that's exactly why the student movement in 2011 emerged with that uh, with that strength it's because it's those sectors of the working class who have been able to access to have access to education and even in housing and having a car maybe two, maybe even two cars uh, but that's all built on debt and that means that it's super weak and that means that when the crisis comes, like in 20, 2008, people start to suffer the consequences of that. It's basically a movement of people or, or for, of indebted students and see themselves as not being part of the working class, right? In the sense that they don't, not just that they don't use the word, right? Like we're workers or part of the working class. It's that they don't see that they are part of the same group with people who are strictly dependent on wage or, or a, a social group or a community that is dependent on wage to live and to reproduce themselves. So I think that's one of the reasons why those students uh, eight years ago and those... Uh, and eight years ago, this is university students. And also, prior to also that... High school. Okay. Yeah, five years yeah. before that, it was... Uh, the penguinos. The, yeah, the high school students um, who occupied all the school, almost all the schools in the country were occupied by the high school students. That's a, that's a, that's an interesting story, too, uh, for, for the next show. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the same reason why the young women who m mobilized last year in the universities around violence... Like saw themselves disconnected from the broader issues of the feminist movement, but also of the working class in general. It's the same reason, I mean, it's the same cause for those two phenomena, right? The students in 2011 trying to connect with the workers, but as two different things. Like, we're the students, we have particular interests, and there are the workers who are organized around unions who have not other interests. The same here with the young female students in universities organizing around feminism against violence, against uh, femicide, against a sexist education, and who are disconnected. And, and I'm trying to make that connection because I feel that it's like a theme of the working class in Chile. 
Like it's still f so fragmented. It's so separated. That's why in some universities, the feminist movement that developed uh, within the universities saw themselves as intersectional because the students um, made connections and relations with the workers of the university. So because of that relation, they were intersectional because they were something and the workers were something else and they were different from different class. And so class, it's a vector. So we're inter intersectional. Yeah, this is, this is amazing because I was in, in, in the United States five years ago in 2014. And at that time, there was a concept in Chile that was developed after 2011, after those same uh, huge mobilizations. And that was multi-sectoriality. We understood the, the popular movement in Chile as divided in sectors, the workers, the students, and community, pobladores, people who struggle for housing. And so we saw the need for uniting those sectors. And so we needed a, a, this framework that we call multisectorialidad, the idea that we need to connect the different sectors. And so our political perspectives should be multisectorial. And when I went to the U.S., people would ask me, is that intersectionality? And this is, a, it, it's it's great that now it's, it's like coming back from, from the other side, right? Now, what we used to call multisectorialidad uh, eight years ago is now intersectionality in the in the university. And I think that it speaks to the the way European and American feminism has had an impact in the way uh, feminism has developed in Chile. Okay. Uh, in in I guess mostly in in great ways, like the like queer theory coming into universities and not just universities, also high schools, and basically changing the face of sexuality among the youth in Chile. It's like it completely changed when I was in school. Maybe more so than even. The U.S. Judith Butler is both a rock star here to the people who love her in a way that just on a scale that's just not true, on a scale that's just not true in the U.S. and is like a demon. She was pro. Her visit this year was protested by the right, which is which believes that something called gender ideology is this like left wing conspiracy theory to destroy the the cultural family. Marx cultural Marxism, I think, is what yeah American right wingers would call it more. Yeah. But here it's gen it's like the war on ideology. Both. Yeah, both. But yeah, so it's had a huge that's had a huge impact here. But also, you're saying it's had some bad effects too. Not not just the. I mean, in the way that any sort of adaptation, like uncritical adaptation and adoption of concepts, is like in any movement. Like, there's no way you can bring something that was created for for a whole like completely different context that it makes sense here it's like trying to under for instance trying to understand the racial dynamics in chile using american categories or the or the experience of slavery in the reconstruction and then the civil rights movement like there's no way you can understand the racial dynamics between um, like a sort of like mixed chilean republic against like col uh, the colonial state based on that mixed republic against uh, the indigenous people that's completely different from from like slavery and and civil war and all of that and our american categories also obscure american reality so they can only be more obscurantist here i mean like we like we were discussing the other the other day the the concept of of people 
of color, um, which, you know, might have some utility, certainly also sort of like flattens the distinction between, say, an affluent person of, of South Asian descent, a high caste South Asian descent, whose father is a, a doctor in New Jersey and a descendant of American slaves who is growing up on the south side of Chicago. People of color just sort of makes this into one like smooth category. And so that's already a problem in the U.S. And then to export that to Chile, which has an entirely different history. So, yeah, like using the term white feminism to refer to women in Chile who maybe are not indigenous, for instance, who are not uh, of African descent, which you have, like you have people here in in the whole in the whole Latin America, uh, who or African Latin American, right? But using the term white feminism, you can use it critically, right? You can use the 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 idea of white feminism to try maybe okay, let's understand the racial dynamics and gendered racial dynamics in Chile, and that's a thing, right? And then like creating your own, not just the words, but the way to think about it. But then white feminism is or or other like variations of that same like white whatever as an insult or as a way to simply like close the the, the debate there's no debate after that like what are you going to say like it, it's like uh u.s liberal identity politics translated which are already a problem in the u.s translated into chile where they make no sense at all <laughs> i believe we're sort of living in a <laughs> in the second part of a movie that was filmed in, in the US in the 70s. Yes. Yeah, and it's a really really like hideous movie. The sequel. Yeah, a sequel. Yeah, that's right. And we have the the radical feminism and we have identity politics and we have all those debates and they are almost the same like mirrored and uh, distorted by the way in which, of course, we have lived and thought about our oppression and, and our struggles in the in the last decades. But it's almost the same. It's like a joke. To loop back to some of the things we were talking about earlier, what specifically has been the role of the consciously anti-capitalist left in both of these struggles, the No More AFP and... The, the feminist movement? In the feminist movement, what we have been trying to do is to overcome the, the separation of capitalism and gender oppression and trying to locate the need for gender oppression within capitalism and then come up with some sort of uh, unitarist form of struggle to overcome the ways in which uh, capitalism in Chile shapes our oppression and the way in which we live. So that's basically what we have been trying to do. And that's the result of a process of discussion and understanding capitalism here and uh, also of, of trying to connect the, the consciousness of the feminist movement or something like that, that came up with this notion of patriarchy to connect the content of the of that notion that have been critical to the develop, development of the feminist movement and take that content and put it in the context of a general system that organizes life and the reproduction of life daily and in a generational level that's the work that we have been trying to do so it, it's fair to say that the 
Chilean feminist left is fairly in tune with the sort of feminism articulated in Feminism for the 99% from Nancy Fraser, Tithi Bhattacharya, and, and Cynthia Rutza. Yeah, I would say that because a large um, amount of feminists here, we had been reading uh, that sort of literature. We have been discussing that sort of literature, maybe not the, the manifesto, but because... Uh, very recent. Yeah, it's yeah. too recent. But uh, yeah, Cynthia uh, Ruzza, Titi Batacharia, but also uh, Silvia Federici, had, uh, she's really, she, she's huge here. When she was here last year, thousands of women came to visit and, and listen to her and ask her questions as, as she was kind of like this genius of feminism. We have been trying to, to, to take that because it's uh, something that uh, helps to develop a consciousness of the relation that maybe can overcome the external relation between gender oppression and capitalism. Uh, but we have also tried to uh, do that in a practical way, not just by reading and discussing, but also by organizing in some way that uh, reveals that connection and reveals that relation and also can create the ways of, of thinking collectively about the transformative power of the movement that we are creating. And uh, it's really, it's in the, in the initial steps right now. We have, we're sort of in the process of building that capacity and that ability of, of thinking collectively in a way that can overcome the tendencies to split apart the different, different aspects of reality and think of the interconnections. Uh, but I believe the practical way in which we are doing so, it's uh, growing and making that capacity grow also. Well, a, a follow-up, two-part follow-up on that. One, what is the radical left's power within the broader feminist movement? To what degree is it one force among many and to what degree is it the in terms of the actual leadership the predominant force and and then two what does the following up on the last thing you said what does this movement look like beyond these protests which are impressive they're some maybe the it's maybe the largest protest i've ever seen in my life what does building power and changing society look like for the movement beyond that i don't believe that the anti-capitalist left has really power within the movement. I believe that we are scatter scattered through the movement and maybe placed in positions that help us amplify the way in which we are uh, interpreting the work that we have been doing and come up with ways of processing this movement and the way it articulates itself within itself. Why do I say we have no, not like power? It's because we have no structure. The, the movement, it's not, it's not really structured. On a national level, uh, we have these sorts of coordinations, but we are like in the initial steps. So I believe that the process of const building power, uh, it's starting, starting. And we are in the right places right now because we are working in this so much. We, we like... The, the radical radical left, the anti-capitalist left, that's our left, has put all its, all its energy in building that capacity. 
and it building in building the conditions for that movement to continue the process and not uh, fade out after these uh, really high points of uh, mass demonstrations in the street, but to consolidate that capacity of of making relations within several sectors or uh, aspects of the social movement. What might that look like for no more AFP? It's, I mean, it's it's extremely ambitious what what they're doing, but it's there. There is a proposal to transform the Chilean pension system, and and winning would look like one part of winning would look like getting that passed by by the legislature. What does building power in short and medium term wins, victories, look like for the feminist movement? I believe there's no image of of the way in which we can win. But not because uh but because we're not like trying to build that image. What we have been saying is that we want feminism to become the shape of an alternative. An alternative against the radical right and uh, extreme far, really far right uh, in the continent. What I would say is that this winning would look, would look like uh, international coordination and the possibility of proposing ourselves some milestones in the path for at least Latin America. Of course, I would say like one way of winning would be having abortion, uh, free abortion, legal abortion in Latin America as a whole. That would look like a, a success. But also to have some sort of women's and um, sexual dissidents coordination uh, in an international level that helps us to come up with a program of social transformation that we can push forward uh, in a global level. It seems like maybe, and either of you can respond on this, maybe one reason there's less of a, of a concrete policy goal when it comes to the feminist movement is in part what you're trying to do is, is make feminism a, a transversal force throughout all of these social movements, including no more AFP social movements across the board in Chile. And so the goals are, are sort of also what those movements goals are. Right. And that's in the that's in the program for the strike, right? That includes all of the, the different social movements, demands and, and, and claims for, for change. In our case, in the pensions movement, it's it's different. I mean, we have a more specific, as you say, a policy goal. We want to change the pension system. We, we want actually to have a pension system. Because as, as I was saying before, there's no pension system in Chile. It's basically a private insurance uh, industry. So in that sense, it, it's different. It's different. Anyway, we, we have a, a huge problem with that is that the way the pensions are organized in Chile as this private insurance uh, industry, it means that with that money coming from wages, basically large sectors of the of the national production are funded by that. And so it's not that easy. It's not simply a policy goal. I mean, it takes the shape of a policy, uh, but it's more deep and complex than that. Yeah, I, reading an 
interview that that you did the other day, something that really struck out stuck out to me is the way that this I won't say like it's a modest policy goal because creating an actual pension system that pays people what they need to live is not modest at, at all. It's quite radical. But it's what's even more radical than that is that this is tied to a demand for popular control over the investment of the social security system's surplus into the Chilean economy. In other words, a form of, of democratic control over the social surplus, which is really quite radical. Yes, that's one of the things that that the radical anti-capitalist left was trying to push within the movement was let's focus on that on that discussion. Let's talk about who's going to decide what to do with the with those funds. And so management and investment on of pension funds, we think that that's a a, a discussion that can push for an anti-capitalist perspective for the movement because in itself Social security is basically, it's like not even social democratic policy. It's basically like good capitalism, right? Like in the post-war boom, you have social security across the board in the industrialized Western countries. It's, it's, it's Fordism. Exactly, exactly. And so it's, it's more weak. It's weaker in the early 20th century, but then in the 1950s, you have social security everywhere. Even in Chile, some forms of social security but then in this context like with a with a crisis that it's not stopping uh it's not there's a huge fight like around those those funds right the pension funds are everywhere are being disputed by the basically between the working class and the and the ruling classes everywhere like you see in brazil they are trying to create a private pension system like modeled on the chilean uh system and there's going to be a lot of resistance the same in argentina so everywhere pensions, which are basically the way the uh, the workers can reproduce themselves as a class, right? It's under attack. Everywhere. And obviously, so, that's been a long-term goal of the right in the United States, where you know Bush tried to privatize Social Security, all of these sort of deficit hawk budget balancing type proposals of the last decade or or more were all about you know oh social security is unsustainable we have to to reform benefits and raise the retirement age this is a, a constant trope. right and so uh, we as, as part of the anti-capitalist left we thought okay so this is a demand the change of a pension system is a demand that it's transversal anyone who is working or dependent on someone who works uh, needs a change in the pension there's a crisis there so we need to work for that, for an actual change in the pension system. And that's, a, as I was saying, it's, it's not even a social democratic reform. So we, we understood, we saw that. But that doesn't mean that we, need, we don't have to fight for that change. But then we saw that, as in any other issue, we need to try to push an anti-capitalist agenda within that struggle. And not using that struggle as a like a stepping stone for for actual revolution which is something that some parts of the left do not in like a sneaky sectarian weird weirdo way exactly that is let's try gonna freak yeah. everyone out let's go <laughs> let's go to the movement and then and, and like recruit the best elements of the movement right yeah. now it's not that and it's not just like okay let's uh give like some uh, and resources to this movement and then like exchange it from uh from votes in the next election which is something that other sectors of the left also do or political movements in in general we're thinking let's like through this struggle let's push more 
anti-capitalist perspectives. And that was basically two things. One was I was saying, uh, let's talk about the administration, the management, and, uh, and where do we invest these funds, right? Because with the, the surplus of the pension, like after you get all the money, collect all the money from the workers, then you pay the pensions and then you have a lot of money left. And that's like millions of dollars. So what, what do we do with that? Currently, this is f funneled into the financial system internationally. And, and so basically the same money you get from loans to pay like your house or your education is the same money you already gave to the pension system through the AFPs, right? To the private pension funds. It's, it's a perfect circle for business. And then they use this money and then they get like all the interest in the financial system, but also investment like in actual uh, production, not just like speculative money. And so that's one thing. Let's talk about who is going to decide on what to do with that, uh, with the pension funds. And so we were talking about like, maybe we can have like a so enlarged social spending. Maybe we can have, I don't know, like building and like, different kinds of financial institutions that are controlled by by retired workers. And that's one thing. And then the other was trying to open and change and transform the concept of who is a worker, basically. And then in a way that the pensions are not just like a deferred wage that you get after you retired, but that the pensions are basically, basically like the value of the working class in in general and so because there's something very privatized about the way people at least in the US think about social security it's my retirement it's my I paid into this in contrast to something like quote unquote welfare which is a someone who's not working mooching off of something funded via the taxes of someone who is working unlike social security which is which is different because it's is mine I paid right. into it yes so we were trying to to change that. So that means breaking individualism, as a like as a like the common sense of pensions and and other stuff. But then also we were trying to change the idea of work is only waged work, and so we said we need to focus and like and open the movement basically to migrant workers and women as especially in reproductive labor and domestic work and unwaged work in general. I would say we have not been completely successful in doing that, but through a large process of debating this, our, our proposal for a new pension system, we were able to introduce some changes in, in connection with the feminist movement, at least in this new pension system that we are proposing, recognizing domestic work and unwaged work as actual work. So when someone who has been working all her life in that kind of work, she gets a, a pension that it's not just the universal pension that everyone gets like in welfare systems, but actual recognition of that work. So you spend 30 years like caring for someone or raising kids or working in your community, like in, in some sort of like care, community system, whatever, like you get that work recognized and you should get pension for that. And so, I mean, that's our proposal. It's not, we're far from that being the system. And it, it's going to take not just like good policy. It's going to take like class struggle 
because that's like like literally wages for housework almost, which is a stepping stone to which is a a big advance, but but short of decommodifying all of these sorts of labor relationships and just giving everyone the pension. <laughs> I want to step step back to before we we finish and talk a little bit more about Chilean politics, generally speaking, for people who aren't familiar with them. First, where does Ch- Chile fit into this broader story of the rise and fall of the Latin American pink tide? Because the regional story, as it's generally understood, is that the, these new left or leftish, depending on one's perspective, governments arose during the 2000s in recent years have fallen from power because the commodity boom that was fueling their increased social expenditure, social expenditure that did a lot of good in many countries, that commodity boom went bust and then the left fell. And so a new right, an extreme right in the case of Brazil, is now leading a hemispheric reaction. But Chile is often described differently. It's described as a country that is sort of ping-ponged back and forth between center-left and center-right governments since the return of democracy. Where do you see the Chilean story fitting into the regional story? And where do you see it departing? So definitely, I would say there's something related to the fact that the neoliberal response to the the crisis in the 70s in Chile happened very early. I, I think that's a, that's one of the reasons that why Chile stands out from the region in terms of the way the commodity the commodity boom in the 2000s like was processed in a different way as you were saying like in in several countries what happened was that basically that was more like money to spend on social stuff, basically. And despite all the structural or, or institutional changes in Ecuador, in Bolivia, in Venezuela, most of all, despite all of that, it was basically like enlarging social spending and like creating social programs. So calling it socialism, I guess right now, especially right now, it's out of the, out of the table. There's no way that you can call that socialism or even like a socialist revolution. Maybe it was a, a, a revolutionary in the way that, in the sense that it's a very intense way to process that commodity boom, considering the whole the political tensions and, and even ideological tensions in those countries. Like, for instance, Evo Morales being an indigenous president, right? That was that's huge, especially in a country with the um, over half of the population being indigenous. What it precisely was was an attempt to address certain social problems without socialism, relying on commodity revenue instead of increasing taxation. I mean, to to avoid to solve certain social problems, indeed, without advancing even basic social democratic reforms, like commodity revenue instead of taxes. Rich people kept most of their money during this period. Right. And so so Chile was prepared for that. Like we had the vaccine maybe 15 or 20 years before that. Like in the in the late seventies, early eighties, the Chilean economy was transformed to and in the constitution and all was transformed to to avoid any sort of like populist deviation in terms of like the political administration of those economic underlying processes. Even though we can't understand Chile as in, like we can't understand any country in Latin America without looking at their 
the way they take part in the global market. And in that sense, Chile and the rest of the countries of Latin America are very similar. Chile is basically a country that exports bits of like uh, stuff, like stone rocks. A friend used to say, like, we basically export like dessert and, and rocks. That's basically it, right? So copper and other stuff from the mines and then like whatever you take from the forest and like paper and stuff like that, cellulose and that, and then like fruit. And so the, the entire country is based around those economic dynamics. Even like you can understand the working class in that, in that, in those terms, like how it's all dependent on those uh, industries. And then you have a huge industry sector, uh, service sector, that a lot of part of that is based around those, like working on the rest of the chain to export those services. And then you have commerce and all that. But so Ch I, I think that, so the, the thing that I wanted to say is that Chile stands out because of that, of that supposed like miracle of the of the 80s. And also, and, and this is, I guess, similar to the US in terms of the political coalitions, and that we have we also have a bipartisan system. It's starting to collapse in a way with the extreme right and sectors of the left like going and like growing outside the main the, the main parties. But that we also have a system that is it was very stable during the 90s and 2000s because of that uh, the way the constitution and the way the political system was transformed in the during the dictatorship. I agree. Um, that last part was what, what I was going to like underscore. Because of the political representation of the working class in Chile, I believe, had been for many years, decades, those two like main coalitions. And they have taken up the task of ensuring ways of the normal re reproduction of the working class by means of uh, focalization, of uh, pol policies of focalization of resources. And um, that, have, that has been quite successful, I believe. Success, successful in, in one way, um, that is destroying systematically the conditions for another form or another way for the working class to find a political representation. So even the, this uh, new phenomenon that is the Frente Amplio. Broad front. Yeah. I believe we'll take part uh, in that way of ensuring the reproduction of the working class because it's the way in which the whole system is organized. And it's really difficult to produce some sort of political representation that goes another way. That's why I believe we have to create a large process of building uh, a political force that can, a social political force that can push something different and that can create the conditions for another kind of political re representation. But if we don't have that capacity, that power, the main thing that's going to happen is uh, another change in the administration, but mainly the same way of, of government. Let's uh, just talk about that a little more specifically in terms of electoral politics on the left, or at least to the left of the center. There has been the major center-left coalition, Concertación, which more or less then became Nueva Mayoría, Concertation and New Majority, which has in recent years included the Communist Party, which had previously been on its own. 
And then there's also this new coalition, which you just mentioned, the Frente Amplio, or Broad Front, which I've heard characterized in a lot of different ways. As you know, I had Daniel Halloway, the mayor of Recoleta, who's a communist on recently, and he characterized them as a mixed bag that included some left currents and some right liberal currents. So what's what's your take on both on both co- uh, both of these coalitions, their significance for Chile and the Chilean left in particular? I would agree with Halle in that uh, picture because <laughs> yeah, because of course uh, that's that's not really an interpretation; it's the truth. There are right wing parties like the Partido Liberal, the Liberal Party. And there are some uh, real far-left parties like, I don't know, Nueva Democracia, New Democracy, that comes from a long line of uh, communist left (laughs) uh, organizations. So, yeah, that's that's true. What what we believe, what we have discussed uh, so far, is that at least the Frente Amplio broad front, it's... uh, funny translation. <laughs> yeah. Um, funny. yeah, It's the way in which a process of politicization within some layer of the working class that it's really, you can like trace a line and say this this is the layer that it's been represented by the broad front, the Frente Amplio. Particularly the student movement? Yeah, the student movement. Yeah, I would say that. And that process of politicization came up with this sort of attempt to participate in the way in which uh, the political system is organized. And in the, the very beginning of, the, of this coalition, it was an electoral effort. And that's in, in its DNA. It's part of the, f- the form of unity that it produces and tends to, to reproduce. So I believe we do not know what the Frente Amplio is because it haven't had the chance to develop uh, its project, but I would tend to think that it's uh, one of the tendencies that it may develop is really no more than a change of uh, personnel within the, the state, and that the labor that has been uh, done by the new majority and the nueva mayoría will be generationally replaced by some of the layers of the Frente Amplio if it goes in the way that it has been going so far. Which Hadway also sort of said, he said that the Frente are the children of the new majority. Yeah, of Which course. That's the most pessimistic take. but Yeah, that's the pessimistic, uh, the pessimistic take because, of course, it can be something else. It can be pushed uh, towards a process of uh, densification, social densification. Like, I believe it will be forced to be something else than that uh, like empty promise of ruling this country in a fresh uh, citizen like friendly way that tendency is, is really strong because uh, the Frente Amplio is now led by Revolución Democrática uh, that's the main party it has most of the representatives in the Congress and it's a party that has no no social transformation project. It's mainly humane capitalism, so it's not really promising. There's another part of the Frente Amplio, of course, that is this left that is trying to 
unite and come up with something else. And that's, uh, that has these, this political thesis of this rupture or break, democratic break, that should be performed by these masses that would be trying to enter the state and break the, the closures of the dictatorship and the way that the dictatorship... To finally end the transition. Yeah. I don't know what, what could come up yeah. if that's yeah, the case. I, I was going to say that uh, there's a reason for the emergence of Frente Amplio, and that's it's, uh, it's that the transition has not ended. Uh, basically, people say a lot of things about themselves and you can't just believe them, right? And so Frente Amplio, in a way, has a more progressive and in some sense, it's like a socialist perspective. But actually, I, when you see what's going on with their their politics, what do they actually do? You see that it's a program for actually like fulfilling the promises of ending the dictatorship in Chile, which is a lot. I mean, it's not something that you can just dismiss, but it's the same as like uh, the popular unity. Was it a revolution? Was it like a social revolution? Was it a national popular movement for uh, for actual capitalism to develop in Chile in a way that it's not like uh, a peripheral capitalism dependent and colonial or neo-colonial capitalism, right? And so I guess it's like the same, right? I mean, it's you, we know that history happens first as a tragedy and then as a farce, and 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 not in the sense that it's like fake, but in the sense that it, it it's epic. It's not so epic, right? It's basically like fulfilling those promises, which are basically redistributing resources for more people and like not having a, a, the most unequal country in Latin America having a political system that is more open to diversity, not having the armed forces and the military and the police being so corrupt and overbearing on politics, uh, having an actual separation of the state and the church. So basically it's like... A new, a new constitution? Yeah. it's like, So it's basically like a, a becoming Chile a, 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 like a m modern country, a developed country. In that way, it's not so different from the concertación and, and then Nueva Mayoría, the new majority. The difference is who's doing it. And that's that's very important because the, as Alondra was saying, Frente Amplio represents a wave, a new wave of politicization in Chile, especially for the youth and some sectors of the workers that don't feel represented by the former blocs uh, in power, the, the concertación and the new majority. And that means that they are looking for a place where to organize their political concerns. And I think, and, and some of them come from resisting the dictatorship in the 80s or the 90s. Some of them come from the student movement 10 years ago. And some of them are like rehashed old politicians that are bored with their parties and then changed, they moved to, to Frente Amplio to have like a fresh space. And so in that way, I think we need to see Frente Amplio as a, a progressive tendency among like the, the population, among the, the political process in Chile. That doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's going to end the way they think it's going to end. I, I agree with Alondra that uh, Frente Amplio government can become basically a management of the current moment of capitalism in Chile in a way that it's different from the more extreme ways. 
So it's not maybe it's not racist. Maybe it's not the most、uh, patriarchal sectors of the of the right wing or the center left or center right、uh, parties. But it's definitely not an anti-capitalist revolutionary movement, despite what some sectors in the movement can say. So it has that double meaning right now, political meaning. It's a progressive in a way, but it has the potential of being regressive at a moment of a major crisis. So we could see a, a Frente Amplio government stopping and like putting the brakes on a social movement that is pushing, like for instance, the feminist movement. That is trying to unite large sectors of the working class across the wage unwaged、uh, divide, and they're going to say, "No, we can't like fund pensions for everyone. Like, there's a limit to it." What about Concertación, new majority? Obviously, people from the Frente and the Independent Left have plenty of criticisms of them. I've also heard that from some people that Bachelet for all of her shortcomings did. Achieve some some concrete accomplishments, and then within that, there's the question of the controversial question of the communists' entry into Bachelet's government. What's your assessment of that? I would picture it with an example that I believe it's、uh, really、um, speaks a lot of the way in which the new majority and concertation works politically. That is、um, what Bachelet with, did with abortion. Uh, the feminist movement ha- have been pushing forward the, the demand for free and legal abortion in Chile, and she took that and presented a project that was、um, for abor- abortion in three like、uh, causales. Causes for th- for three for th- in three cases in three circumstances. Yeah,、maybe? abortion in three in three circumstances circumstances would be allowed, and those. Uh, circumstances where、uh, rape, endangerment of the woman's、uh, life, and fetus not being able to live、uh, outside the, uter- the uterus. So, what she did with that was to paint a picture of a progressive sort of measure, but it was really a stoppage of a process of development、uh, of a social demand. Towards、uh, sexual and reproductive rights for women, I believe I believe that that measure that she she put forward that that project, it speaks about the way in which a、uh, new majority takes some of the demands of the social movement and then tones it down and makes them a new way of governing the same exclusionary and precarizing、uh, sort of、uh, system and. Or, Form of organizing life here. That also in the students' uh, movement uh, movement demands, one one of them was uh, free uh, education for all. And what she did was、uh, she took that and she made free education imply more、uh, scholarships for some. And so this universalistic demand. That、uh, the student movement could come up with, after a decade or so of organizing and discussing and putting forward a project of public education, was transformed into its most neoliberal form、uh, possible. That is what、uh, the Nueva Mayoría does. That's、uh, the way it 
its politics works. So of course it's better than like Bolsonaro, it's better than Macri, it's better than, Pi than Piñera because the social movement demands are part of the of the government concerns and issues. But in terms that uh, the deactivate the, the the social movement's power because after that, after Batillet took, for example, the demand for free education, the, the student movement declined absolutely. And every horizon of social change in education was lost. So it's really dangerous for the social movement, maybe even more dangerous for its process of political development than the right. Of course, the right is more dangerous for the conditions of life, day-to-day -day life, uh, because it's uh, repressive, uh, hyper-repressive and violent and so on. But in terms of political development, the new majority acts like this um, this political decompressor. So, mm -hmm. uh, and and this machine of processing the demands of the social movements uh, in neoliberal terms. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a, it's basically a politics of neutralization of social movements and and social demands for change. Uh, and I think that has to do with the, who they represent. Basically, Concertación became... Concertación was founded in the late 80s when the struggle against the dictatorship was uh, becoming a problem for the regime. And there had to be political solutions, right? Because in was, early 80s... It was Concertación por la con, Democracia. Exacto. Concertación por la Democracia. Concertation for Democracy. And that included the newly created parties that were old leftists became progressives, in some cases, like openly, I wouldn't say neoliberal, because in those days, people wouldn't talk like that so much, but like open to like free market, social free market in a way. So it's like, let's have capitalism, but it, let's make some adjustments. And the Socialist Party was there. The Socialist Party had like undergone a process of, uh, we call it uh, like renovation. And that basically, that basically meant transforming uh, the idea of the ideas of, of socialism into social programs for the extreme poor because that was the socialist party was the party of, of Allende exactly. in the broader coalition but the socialist was that was his party and it, and it had became like, a very different party yeah yeah and, today. and and it it always it always had different like fractions there were some very radical ones. Even during the Allende government, there were some groups within the Socialist Party calling for an armed revolution. Allende was not from that section. Uh, Allende was closer to the Communist Party and the, and the popular unity. Um, we would say more conservative uh, reading of the political process. So Concertación was born out of a need to organize the political struggle against the dictatorship because the social struggle was already happening since the early 80s. We had a huge financial crisis in the early 80s, 82, 83. Thousands of people going to the streets, especially women in the neighborhoods, in the in the popular neighborhoods, organi organizing their communal life in a way that allowed them to resist the crisis. And so there was already a social movement against the dictatorship, organized from, from, from below in a way. Uh, but then political parties were prohibited at the time, and then it, it, there was an opening for new political parties, and then the concertación happened. There was always 
the problem of uh, Christian Democrats, which we know is a it's a party created in the fifties in the sixties to basically give a space a, a conservative space for social transformation, right? So it's a way. It's the same, basically the same as Alondra was saying. This neutralizing politics of taking radical demands and turning them into demands that are processable. It's the right. It's the right of the center left in in Chile, whereas in in Europe, I think it's often the left of the center right. Yeah, it's more maybe it's more conservative. Yeah, everywhere. Um, but here, it w- both played a the the Christian Democrats both played a key role in the coup and. In ending the dictatorship, exactly. They they have that role in Chile, the political role of being like in between the center, like being the actual center in political terms. Because in 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 social, like in their actual platform, they're basically right wing, but they have that role in in the political spectrum. So the promise of the concertación was basically to end the dictatorship and then make the transition to a, a new system, basically based on like civil liberties and open market, that combination of democracy and capitalism, uh, but the, the, the nice capitalism, right? And the thing is that that even didn't happen, right? The, the promise of Concertación, their, their slogan was uh, the, the joy, happiness is coming. Alegría, la alegría ya viene. Joy is, is coming. That's the slogan for the Concertación for the referendum in 88. This is that commercial where they're all building a house together in the middle of like the I think so field. yeah Anyways, I, I mean yeah, yeah. so yeah for, so around the referendum there's a, a very interesting campaign in in like advertisement a, a political advertisement and, and so they wanted to show this happy Chile coming and 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 the dictatorship on the other side which is weird like you have like an election between the dictator and like and like saying no to the dictator that's basically the referendum it was the yes to Pinochet, the no to Pinochet. And it's weird because generally uh, uh, people vote for the yes, right? Like voting no, it's like... It's negative. Yeah, exactly. But people were fed up with the dictatorship and then they voted no. And so this Concertación, they feel so proud of defeating the dictatorship with the paper and the pencil. This is what they say. This is the Christian Democrat uh, narrative of the transition, is that there was no armed struggle involved which is simply not true. It's just that they, the Christian Democrats, just killed everyone who was involved in armed struggle during the early 90s. Because in this new government, democratic government, they created what was known as The Office, which is fun. It's a funny name after the TV show, but it was not that funny in the early 90s, where you had former socialists and Christian Democrats and people from the center-left basically chasing militants from the armed struggle groups that were still existing at that point to detain them or kill them. And so they were organizing assassination to basically deactivate that that strand of struggle in, in Chile. Okay, so now, in a way, Frente Amplio is representing the radical, the more radical moment of that promise. It's not the conservative, right? They're not the ones who are going to like chase a radical militants. I mean, you never know. People in government like do weird stuff, I guess. So leftists becoming presidents, 
we were talking about this the other day. I mean, you get to government, you need to have like a if general. If Bernie Sanders elected president, he, who's he going to choose as the FBI director? Right. It's going to be, be in, someone. Who's going to be in the Pentagon yeah. of, the, of the Jacobin bunch, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who in DSA is going to like work for that? I mean. It, it's, a, it's a serious dilemma. Yeah. You have to like make those questions. But that's a, another thing. The thing is that that that's the promise, and they're trying to like work on that. I think, and that's the risk of of that. And quickly before I let you go, what about the the controversy over the the role of the Communist Party in their entrance into the new majority? Obviously, that didn't please some of the CP militants, but it's also not known as being the most democratic party in Chile. So, and then on the other hand, you have. Daniel Hathaway, who I interviewed, obviously, on this podcast, being one of their most popular politicians, doing really innovative, kind of not what you'd conventionally think of as communist things in Recoleta, but having what are seen as pretty serious, if not publicly expressed, differences with the traditional Communist Party leadership. The Communist Party did not just enter in this new majority. It came up with the idea of the new majority. They also came up with the name of the new majority. It was their project, and they read that it was necessary to enlarge com the composition of this political coalition that administered and to like push forward a leftist perspective within some of the political spaces of the main political spaces. They were they had ministers. They had they like trained themselves to be government. I believe that's why they they attempted that it's part of their strategy. That's uh, the uh, democratic revolution. That's how they they named it in their Congress in the 94. I believe it's a continuation. It's not a, a rupture or a break in their strategy. It's like the development of that strategy. So it's it was something that we could like have foreseen. Maybe the people that are not happy with the decision are not really like that close with the strategy content of the Communist Party. Because, of course, they want to be government again. They want to create the basis for a popular government in Chile. Uh, so their their participation in, in this coalition and in, this, in the administration of the state is part of the training, is part of the acquisition of the capacities to govern in Chile. And I believe that they, what they say in public at least, they defend the, the government of, of Bachelet. They believe it was uh, quite successful. Of course, they read that there's a process of um, pushing forward the main social demands and the main aspects of the program. And then this moment of pushback uh, because of the forces relations uh, The, ba the balance of forces. Yeah, the balance of forces within the, the Nueva Mayoría, the new majority. Like they blame a lot of the shortcomings on the Christian Democrats in particular. As always. Yeah, they always blame the, the Christian Democrats. Which is not crazy. Yeah, and no. the Christian Democrats blame the communists. <laughs> yeah, so they it's, also, uh... it's like a really symbiotic relation. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, I, as a, as a left person, leftist, person do not agree with uh, this strategy. I believe it's um, it doesn't help the working class to achieve 
transformations that can increase the ability of the working class of producing an alternative, a world alternative. But I believe it's really coherent with the way in which the Partido Comunista, Communist Party, uh, interprets the the social change in a neoliberal country. Because the way in which they believe neoliberalism organizes society is that it produces a new contradiction. That it's this like this main contradiction of of the political moment that is the contradiction between democracy, understood as formal democracy, and neoliberalism. And so they interpret themselves in being part of the government as an advance of democracy against neoliberalism. Which is like a a secondary order, second order contradiction within capitalism but where the primary focus political struggle should, uh, should be. be at the yeah. moment yep. to finish up what what's your take on this and do you do you see a possible realignment where all of the various forces of the left from the communists who are who have been in new majority to the left forces within Frente Amplio to the extra parliamentary left that you all are involved in do you see some possible realignment where all those forces are brought into to coalition with one another in a way that could be powerful? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's a level of opposition to the right-wing government right now that there's a space for that. And not just a space, there's a need for that. There's a need for a broad coalition, uh, not coalition, but an opposition, like a social and political opposition to this government, any other government that is following the same policies. That's one thing. And that already happens, not in an organized way, but it happens when within the social movements, we find ourselves hand in hand struggling against the pension system with members of the Communist Party, with members of Frente Amplio. And that's, uh, and that's great because there's, a, there's unity in that, in that struggle. For us, that's a, that's a key thing to actually have an, an impact politically. But then strategic differences are so deep that I don't see in the near future a space for that sort of coalition. Because I feel that there's a difference in the way, for instance, the way the Communist Party and some sectors of the Frente Amplio understand the role of social social movements in a very different way. They have an old, this is my, my take, they have an old Leninist idea that social movements are like unions and so they have an economic limit. And so politics is only the role of the party, it's the role of the party. And then the party basically like organizes the political process for those movements to be like... For their demands to be articulated in the political sphere. Exactly. Under the management of the party. Exactly. And they, and they have to like work for that on the ground. And then, but okay, now, now it's, you have to leave us like do the negotiation or actually the actual like power uh, situation. So that way to understand the relationship between social movements and and politics in general means that it's not it's not just wrong like ethically that they are just like using and and instrumentalizing social movements that's one thing uh, the most immediate thing is that they are not understanding the new composition of the working class in chile they are not understanding that politics in the traditional sense of parties going to struggle for an a place in the state is the way the political representation is going to happen in the next in the next century, and and so just to to finish up, what would then a productive 
progressive relationship between social movements and left political parties in Chile, like what might that hypothetically look like and how and how do you get there? In the immediate future, what, what I imagine is uh, the possibility of this uh, left-wing government between, of course, the Frente Amplio, the Broad Front, Communist Party, and so, some of the people of the Concertación. Because I do not believe that the Frente Amplio can govern. They, they don't have the people to do that. So what I imagine will be like that happening and the social movement with our participation in it, trying to establish some sort of political autonomy for uh, its continuing growth. I believe that in the immediate future would be the best scenario because we would... So that would be a political realignment that would take the left portions of the Frente Amplio, combine them with the Communist Party and maybe the the left of the Socialist Party and maybe some other forces and then maintaining social movement autonomy within that and not having it totally be deactivated and co-opted into that government. Yeah, and that would be a struggle, of course, because the, the, the struggle today to keep the autonomy of the movement is something that is uh, difficult and it's hard to do. And I believe it would be harder to do that with uh, this coalition in, in the government. But I believe it would be like the best uh, scenario because we would like uh, know for a fact the limits of the participation in the state. The social movement and so the working class could learn from that experience and could um, develop new ways of organizing itself. But I believe it's the, the main task for this moment. Ultimo comentario y terminamos. Yeah, I would say that, as Alondra was saying, the, that independence of the social movements is the basis for a new politics in Chile, or for, for a new revolutionary politics uh, in the left. In the sense that changing the idea that the, the avant-garde of politics, of revolutionary politics, is in the state, and understanding that that's Politics in the state is the rear guard for an actual revolution. They are the one who should be like holding the fort so that the military is not like doing another coup. And it's the actual social movements and and the organized labor and militant mass movements that should be doing the actual struggle against landlords, against corporate interests on the ground internationally. And that definitely looks like an international thing not it's not like we can like see this process uh, happening only nationally so i guess like the connection to like unblock this weird dilemma of what are we going to do in the next years it has to do with connecting with and working in a strategic uh, perspective with political movements anti-capitalist movements in other countries in latin america alondra carrillo and pablo abufom thank you very much Thank you, Daniel. Yeah, thanks. Alondra Carillo is a psychologist, feminist activist, and a member of the Coordinadora Feminista 8M, or the March 8th Feminist Coordinator. Pablo Abufom 
is a translator, militant in the Solidaridad organization, a founding member of the Social Center and Projection Library, and a member of the Coordinadora Nacional de Trabajadores y Trabajadoras No Más AFP, which roughly but not very elegantly translates as the National Workers Coordinator Against the Pension Fund Administrator. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that all science would be superfluous if the outward appearance and the essence of things directly coincided. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling other people about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And last but by no means least, find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Mm-hmm.